It's late on a Friday afternoon, and I'm standing in the Snood City Art Studio in the Grand Avenue Arts District when co-owner Mike Butzine, or Mikey B, comes out to greet me. Hey! How's it going? Hey, how are you? Good, good. He and his partner, Michelle Meyer, or Mish, are visual artists who create neon sculptures and immersive art for big events like music festivals, alongside their dog, Jerome, who was there to greet me. Jerome, hello. Named after the town I take Yeah, I was living in Sedona for a little bit. Their studio is full of neon sculptures and other works of art. It definitely feels unique to Mish and Mikey B, like it's their space. This place came across and we just said yes. We were like, okay, we'll take it. We didn't know at the time that this was going to be the neon studio, but it just became the perfect thing. Like, what could be a better way to bring attention to and kind of light up Grand Avenue? Grand Avenue is a shining example of the economic power a local art scene can have. Well, this is Phoenix today, a book dark horse of the desert which, within a few years, may have a larger population than Boston or Philadelphia. Before the days of the interstate, Grand Avenue was the main highway connecting fledgling Phoenix and bustling Los Angeles. Back then, glitzy hotels with buzzing, beautiful neon signs graced the highway. The skyline changes every few weeks. Between the 1960s and 1990, the interstate came, and Grand Avenue swiftly fell into disuse and decay as tourists bypassed the motels and businesses. Over the years since then, though, affordable rents and an investment in the arts has led to the Diagonal Street's renaissance. And now, thanks to artists like Mish and Mikey B, there is some neon glimmering on the street again. Up until March of this year, Grand Avenue hosted its monthly First Friday Arts Festival, and Snood City was at the forefront. So we had a ton of these walls that when we added them into the first Friday, they became these huge canvases for live painters to come and add to the experience that you saw unfold over the course of the night. And so, yeah, each each first Friday, we would have a different group of artists come and basically throw down on this wall kind of whatever they wanted to do. The interest generated by artists like Snood City was instrumental to Grand Avenue's redevelopment. Arguably, Snood City and all independent artists are small businesses, and they all play an important role in economic development, just like any small business. But if you look at the state budget, you might not believe it. In 2019, the Arizona budget allocated no money for the arts, and the 2020 budget set aside a little more than $2 million. 0.01% of the state's nearly $12 billion budget. Add in the stress of the pandemic, and it makes sense arts organizations, from Snood City to the Arizona Opera and the Black Theater Troupe, are adapting their revenue models. Like Grand Avenue and Roosevelt Street, which saw their renaissance through embracing the arts, the state will owe its post-pandemic economic recovery to the arts scene just as much as it does to restaurants and shops. On this episode of State of the Arts, Arts and Economic Recovery. This is the Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra's live cover of the song Progress by legendary Afrobeat musician Tony Allen. 
What you can't see, though, is how they're performing it. It's a YouTube video featuring nearly a dozen individual artists playing together, but apart, like so many of us have had to do this year. It's almost like a Zoom conference concert. Uh, hi, my name is Camille Sledge, and I'm one of the co-founders of the School of Hip Hop here in Phoenix. And I'm also the lead singer for the Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra. We are now a 14-piece band, and we performed really big shows because it has to be kind of a big-sized stage or area for us to even fit the band in there in the first place. They've played for big events, like the Red for Ed March on the state capitol back in 2018. They also play shows at local venues. We did um, a lot of stuff at the Crescent Ballroom and the Valley Bar and even the Van Buren. But obviously, the past year they've had to adapt their performances and move online. The problem with that, of course, is funding. They'd get paid to perform in person. Well, we, we played shows. We played shows big and small. We played wherever we could. We... Um, we were able to get better rates at different shows when we got bigger. And that's, you know, just been the, the run of the game. We had to really work hard to get there. I think it was um, the same as most bands do. We start out broke and practice really hard. We practiced at one of our houses, you know, it was one of the bandmates' houses that we practiced at. So it would be free. And now we, ended up with a rehearsal space that we can all fit in, you know? <laughs> and um, it's really um, just like, you know, beating the pavement. We've really just done our part and worked hard. I'm really proud of everybody. I'm really proud. David Hemphill is also proud of his group of performers. This is David Hemphill at Black Theater Troupe, and I am the executive director. The Black Theater Troupe is the only professional black theater company in the Southwest. It was founded in 1970 in response to rising racial unrest that was spreading to Phoenix. It was just, just about to rear its ugly head in Phoenix. You know, we get things kind of late here. So, <laughs> so it, took, um, it took the late 60s, uh, early 70s for uh, that unrest to be to come to fruition. So first of all, it started as an open door policy like rap sessions. Uh, come in to a space, uh, Sydney P. At this point, it was a Sydney P. Osborne housing projects and um, First Institutional uh, Baptist Church in the basement of the old city hall. Hemphill describes how its founder, Helen Mason, encouraged members of the local Black community to participate. So she would invite members of the community in and um, ask them to uh, write a scene, write a poem, uh, compose a song, all with the theme of why uh, the racial unrest in Phoenix and the segregation 
and the civil injustices, why it was important to them and why it was bothering, bothering them. Like the Afrobeat Orchestra, the Black Theater Troupe has had to adapt its money-making strategy this past year. Some theaters are a little, um, de depend a lot on individual contributions, corporate contributions, and etc. We depend on those things also, but we had a very, very strong um, subscription base and a very, very strong single ticket base. So a lot of our income was, was earned revenue. Earned revenue comes from ticket sales, art commissions, and subscriptions. Essentially, people paying for the art. For most arts organizations, earned income is down this year, as people aren't buying tickets to shows that don't exist. Again, we're kind of, kind of at a disadvantage because we didn't have a very, very um, potent corporate contribution machine. We, all of our contributions um, that were not um, individual or income that was earned, all of those were grants and contributions that were based on things that we couldn't do. Our children's programs, um, our reading program for the uh, kids in the community, the lunch programs that we were doing. The Phoenix Theatre Company is larger and has a broader base, and even it is struggling. Executive Director Vincent Van Vliet says most of its money came from ticket sales. We typically run about 60 to 70 percent earned revenue through both ticket sales and, you know, we have our, our summer program for children, uh, our summer of dance program. There's a number of, of um, things that we do that generate income. We have an apartment building. Which they actually had to shut down for much of 2020. For a stretch of time after the PPP ran out, we were shut down. And so we really, you know, isolated the the expenditures going out. We idled, you know, air conditioning systems and things like that over the, over the summer to minimize the expense like so many organizations across the country. Here, Arizona producer Anthony Wallace visited a long-running Scottsdale Arts Festival to learn how this loss of revenue has impacted not only art organizations, but individual artists themselves. On a cloudy Saturday in mid-January, the Celebration of Fine Art opened its massive, tent-covered art show to the public for the 31st consecutive year. As opening day turns to afternoon, there's laughter and music. Artists and art buyers mingle inside the 40,000 square feet of temporary open-air gallery booths and studio spaces. A cool breeze wafts in from the central courtyard, which is adorned with sculptures. Some are like abstract metallic swoops as tall as a person. It isn't crowded inside, and everyone wears masks. But it is an event, and people are together. I have seen today a lot of people that always come to the show. And by God, they've been closed up for almost a year, and they're going to come out regardless because they love this place. They love the atmosphere. They love the artists. The artists love them. You know, it's one big family. Marty LeMessure is one of three artists at the show this year who've participated in it all 31 years. This show has been really a lifesaver to many, many artists. This show is unique among art shows. It's long, over two months, and it gives artists a chance to set up and paint live for the crowd 
and form relationships with repeat attendees. Marty was one of a few artists I spoke to that said this is the only show they do all year. This has allowed me to really pay my mortgage, not be a struggling artist. I've built up a following over the years. I've picked up a publisher. I've had galleries have come through and invited me to show. Galleries and individual art buyers have come to know her for her Native American-inspired still-life scenes. Her patrons commissioned their own ultra-realistic paintings of colorful beaded moccasins from the Sioux tribe or canvases adorned with Navajo rug patterns. So Marty's been able to sell pieces online, even as smaller and shorter-term art shows across the country have been canceled due to COVID. The other shows not happening didn't affect me because I only do this show now. I'm, as I said, I'm the old lady on the block. But I know it hurt a lot of fellow artists. The artists it hurt were younger, less established ones, like Eileen Frick. For them, those smaller festivals going away was a really big deal. If you can't have a large group gathering, you just can't have a show and then there's no shows to sell and the crowds are huge yeah i mean you might i do the tempe arts festival that can be a hundred thousand people in a in a weekend in 2020 she was scheduled to do shows in san antonio milwaukee salt lake city aspen and many others and all of them after march were canceled she doesn't normally sell her art online but rather to patrons face to face and covid made that impossible there's been some amenities for with like the pandemic, unemployment, but it, it really has impacted all of my finances. <laughs> Grants for artists and small businesses have helped her stay afloat for now. This year is her fifth at the celebration of Fine Art Show. Yeah, I don't even feel like I have a choice. It's, it's what I was born to do. But like whether I get paid for it or not, I'm going to create. Eileen paints on top of collages she makes. Hundreds of shards of magazine pages pasted together to make sunsets and cityscapes. Displayed beside her paintings is a photo of her at work, squatting beside a pile of magazine pages hunting for just the right color. She said she hasn't worked a non-art job to pay the bills since 2015. And up till this point in the pandemic, she's been able to avoid resorting to that. For now, she's taking things day by day and focusing on her art. I kind of take it that the universe is telling me to paint right now. <laughs> and, and that's where I need to focus. And, okay. and that the money will come. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really worry too much about it. Four-time show participant Colin Branham is in a situation similar to Eileen's. He's from California, one of about half the artists at the show from out of state. And art is a family affair for him. It's my mom's booth over there. She's been doing the show for 26 years now. Her father was an artist. And I just kind of grew up in the studio going to art shows, coming here as a child. Colin spends most years selling his colorful, abstract acrylic pieces on the California Arts Festival circuit. But this year, of course, most of them have been canceled. Yeah, definitely hard for business. Um, Fortunately, I've always been sort of conservative with my money as much as I could be. So I had a little bit of a war chest to work with. Um, But yeah, no, it's, it's not been great. Luckily, he said he's been able to get some unemployment benefits, but he won't be for much longer. It's been a good day. Um, sold a couple paintings, so we'll be going off unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Colin wore a heavy-duty mask under his cloth one as he worked on a big canvas outlined with the future work. He said he feels pretty comfortable at the show, although some people are more lackadaisical with precautions than others. Coming to Scottsdale made him a little uneasy. Were you conflicted at all about doing it? Or? A little bit, um, but you know, you can't, uh, can't stay on unemployment forever, so eventually, you know, push comes to show and you gotta go out and make some money. Like Collins Art, the North Scottsdale show itself is a family affair. I'm Susan Morrow Poget, and I'm the co-owner of the Celebration of Fine Art along with my husband, Jake. Okay. Susan said both art organizations and individual artists in Arizona have been tremendously impacted by the pandemic. So everybody's adapting, and there's kind of two sides of that coin. So many of our artists who participate in the Celebration of Fine Art also do weekend shows throughout the rest of the season, or they do museum shows or auctions around the country. Those are the Collins and Eileen's of the art world. Without live events, they're not selling nearly as much work. But people like Marty... A lot of people who are in galleries um, or represented by designers that, you know, the sales are still strong. Among her biggest concerns is how these many months without foot traffic or nearly any live events will impact artists and art organizations going forward. I would say many arts organizations are always on a shoestring anyway, so it, there's not a lot of reserves. And you know, we, we as an organization were grateful that we had some, some good reserves in place. Um, but I think the world without art is uh, very sad. I mean, art is what feeds our soul. So why does it even matter if arts organizations are financially stable? Members of the greater community who might not create art do consume art, a lot of it. And there is a lot of it to consume. Theater, museums, opera, music venues, galleries, they all serve a consumer and generate revenue just as much as any restaurant or retail shop or golf course. Well, the arts uh, and the culture scene play a very pivotal role to the health and wellness of our regional economy. Uh, it has about a nine billion dollar impact uh, to our to our state, and ultimately, it's about a three percent effect to our GDP. That's Chris Camacho, the president and CEO of the Greater Phoenix Economic Council. According to his data, 2020 was cataclysmic for the arts. Yeah, you know, we've even read 95 percent of the attendance has been lost uh, to to our arts uh, to our arts and uh, culture scene here locally. And that ripples through the economy, just like closing restaurants and shops. If you look at the employment numbers. Uh, There's over 91,000 individuals in Arizona uh, tied to the arts and culture uh, industry here. And so, you know, the impacts are rich when you have a COVID level experience where if you think about traditional participation in performing arts or theater, that night out traditionally is uh, accompanied by a trip to a restaurant or another, uh, you know, activity that's going to drive also, you know, supplemental economic value. So this is a very challenging time for our arts and uh, culture community. Let's go back to that number from the state budget, 0.01%. The state spends 0.01% of its budget on something that generates 3% of its GDP and creates more than 90,000 jobs. Now that's not to say that there's no taxpayer dollars going to the arts. Cities like Phoenix offer grants to independent artists. 
This year, it's approved nearly $1 million from the city budget and $2.6 million in CARES Act funding for artists who have lost work due to the pandemic. That's not a lot, but it's the start of the kind of public-private partnership that Camacho sees as key to saving the local arts community and bolstering the eventual post-pandemic economy. Well, I'd like to see some you know, funds being uh, allocated specifically to help uh, these nonprofits uh, exit this pandemic because those, you know, there's been many that have been massively impacted and affected. Uh, second, I'd like to, to support them with the requirement of, of aligning with private resources. So it's not just a, a public giveaway or taxpayer giveaway. This is a measured response to this particular COVID pandemic that would help a lot of our uh, arts and culture community get back on their feet, much like the other small businesses. And then, you know, the intent's to build a sustainable plan. And so that private, private philanthropy, ticket sales, and so forth can help uh, shore up the financials of these uh, organizations. But that's what I think it's going to take if, if we want to commit to a vibrant uh, art scene here. A vibrant art scene means a few things. It means more jobs. We're really focused on building this modern economy, which is anchored by modern infrastructure, talent pools, uh, you know, really positive policy towards business. And one of the key linchpins to our success, and in particularly technology and headquarter companies in terms of relocation and expansion, is a robust and, and lively arts and culture scene. And well-funded arts also means a more resilient community. Over on Grand Avenue, Mish and Mikey B with Snood City are working to build a resilient local arts community. They used to do well for themselves building neon displays for big events. Think the huge neon sculptures at music festivals. They also started an art collective to bring other small, independent artists together to share the load of expenses. And with that, we were able to bring others and get them involved. So, you know, we, that was a huge test trial of you know, us you know, as an art collective, working with businesses and trying to make it sustainable. And so divvying up, you know, having the, the, the percentage going to the company, you know, that then takes care of rent and tools and whatnot. And then you, with that, then whatever budget is left over, you know, we try and split, let's, let's call it 50-50 of labor and 50 materials. They have a large workshop a few blocks away from their storefront on Grand Avenue. Our workshop, we call it the trap because there's this huge Venus flytrap mural painted across it. Um, it's because, you know, you don't ever want to leave leave your workspace. Yeah. It's a trap. <laughs> so we're really fortunate that it's it's right down the way. So we can bounce. We ride about a quarter mile in the back of their pickup truck and walk inside. Into the space. So uh, this is a shared space uh, where we have, you know, one of our artists that's here right now, Lizzie. Uh, you know, she has a little quadrant and she just adds, of course, you know, her own flavor to the mix. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a space where basically we try to create, you know, tools and stations, to, you know, to make anything. Anybody who wants can join and pay dues. It's something similar as like, you know, motorcycle clubs is having, you know, uh, monthly dues. You know, you, you pay a monthly due and you have, you know, 100% access to the shop. And depending on those dues, you know, whether you have space rental, uh, you just have a, a drawer to just store some of the stuff or, you know, or you just come in and just work, you know, freely kind of, or, you know, work, you know, on your own time kind of a thing. For much of the year, smaller artists have struggled. Those who rely on individual commissions from wealthy commissioners are doing okay. 
But those who rely on art shows and events like First Friday are finding themselves without customers and not producing anything at all. Now it's been a big thing, uh, you know, I find, you know, uh, hearing through the grapevine of like gallery owners having trouble finding artists that are still producing during this time because artists just aren't producing. And there's something that happens spiritually, I believe, you know, as a maker, when you stop making, you know, you're almost finding like, why, why, like, what's my purpose? Like, what, what am I doing with myself? Getting through this time and kind of what Mikey B is talking about, I think the reason that we have all been able to make it through so strong is because we have such a solid community and group of people that we surround ourselves with that helps keep us going and then also attracts others for that inspiration of, okay, well, what can I do or what's next kind of a thing. The arts community is very close-knit. Just ask Camille Sledge. She also runs the School of Hip Hop in partnership with the Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra. We have a jazz camp that we did every summer, and we incorporate the community. We use um, volunteers from the community. We use different nonprofits from the community. All the restaurants in the community will donate lunch and food for the kids each day. It's a, a community effort, and that's what's so enjoyable and loving about it. The school is a licensed 501c3 nonprofit. And we use the five elements of hip hop to teach kids music and culture and give them a chance to find something brighter in the world, especially if they've maybe had life adversities. And so we focus on the kids that maybe need it the most. And our organization's been around for about five years. And we are very well supported by the Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra Band. So if we have a kid who's really good at playing drums and he really loves it, his parents are like, no, I'm not buying a drum kit. So I, you know, I can't buy a drum kit or I won't buy a drum kit, it's too loud. We'll loan the kid uh, like drum pads and ask the parents, of course, if it's okay, if he practices on these pads and we'll say, hey, this is like a library book or something to you. So you rent it from us or we loan it to you for free. We do everything free of charge for the kids. We don't want the kids to have to pay for anything. They were seeing a lot of success by going directly into schools. We've um, noticed that there's a lot of research behind the fact that the arts are very healing to children who've been through a lot of adversities in life. And we find that in certain neighborhoods, you find more kids that have been through more adversity. I don't know how to explain this. I'm like, I'm getting lost for words. I'm kind of getting lost for words. If you've been through many, many life adversities and you find some things such as music, um, there's tons of research behind the fact that it is healing for these kids. Helps them to find their path, find another passion, find another way to focus their energies and sort of just get out of that rut of, I'm not gonna be able to do this because I don't have money. Again, art is more than pretty pictures and interesting sculptures. It represents the voice of a community. 
a voice that brings unity, opportunity, and economic stability to everybody. We'll let David from the Black Theater Troupe end this episode for us. Well, I think that what people have to understand is that we are still here. Just like there is that fact that there are some businesses that aren't going to survive this pandemic, a lot of our arts organizations are on that line, are in that margin also. So what people have to realize is that we are still here and we ask them to kind of kind of keep themselves in tune with the arts. We ask that they keep their minds oiled so that when things do open back up, they're right back in the right back in the swing of things and they can enjoy the theater. But I, that's the most important thing is that people realize that we're still here. And of course, if they have money, that's also a great thing if they uh, contribute to their favorite arts organization. You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify, And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to Snood City, the Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra, the Black Theater Troupe, the Celebration of Fine Art, and the Phoenix Theater Company for their help with this episode. The music in this episode is from local Arizona artists, The Stakes, Danielle Durack, The Color Eight, and Bob Rabbit. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by our senior producer, Scott Bork, includes a segment produced by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit hearearizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H-E-A-R Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.